Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The foundation for any society's progress has always been education. I would argue that education is progress. Political beliefs are a new form of tribalism. They're a new easy way for what sociologists refer to as in-group, out-group identification. It's easy for us to determine who belongs here and who doesn't. One of the things that many people, in my experience, uh, fail to differentiate between is that there is a big difference between reliability and reporting and slant or bias. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our podcast. It's also the name of our weekly newsletter. And it is an attempt to ask that question, given how much we ask the question, what could go wrong? And we're going to talk today to somebody who has, in a very short amount of time, assembled more than a million followers and is kind of part of a nexus that you won't find in the mainstream media. We're not spending a lot of time getting down on mainstream media. It's, it's simply a recognition that established institutions, whether that's mainstream publishing, whether that's established media, reflect what they reflect. They often reflect what sells, and often in a media and news context, what sells is bad news, not good news. And that's human nature as much as anything else. But there are these people and these voices that are springing up in different angles, some through all the social media channels, which are also being highly questioned right now, some of them being highly questioned by members of the Progress Network like Jonathan Haidt. But a lot of what these social media channels are allowing us to do is circumvent traditional channels and find communities of interest that have a different sensibility. Sometimes that's a really dark sensibility, which we know about, but sometimes it's a really light and uplifting sensibility, which we should also know about, and hence why we are talking today with who we are talking with. So Emma, tell us who we're talking with. We are gonna talk with Sharon McMahon. She's a Progress Network member. She's a former high school government and law teacher. She became known as America's government teacher on Instagram during the 2020 U.S. elections under the name Sharon Says So. She has the simple mission of sharing nonpartisan information about democracy. And from that, she's amassed almost a million followers on Instagram alone, lots of followers in other places like Twitter. They're affectionately called the governors. <laughs> and they look to her as a trustworthy source of information and truth. She also has two podcasts, Sharon Says So, and here's where it gets interesting. So Sharon, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Mm, delighted. And I just kind of wanted to start with uh, the basic facts. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you see yourself in this intersection of, you know, online media personalities versus mainstream media versus politics versus history and government, all of these things. Where do you see your role in all of that? I discovered in 2020 that there were a lot of people who wanted more education, but did not want to be told what to think. And there were not a lot of places where people could find that online. They couldn't find it in places where they already were. Perhaps they could, you know, read 18 books at the library or go back to college. But it was very, very difficult to find where people already were. There was very, there are very few people meeting them where they are. So I just started making little nonpartisan 
fact-based explainer videos about how things worked and did it while being myself. You know, like I definitely have a sort of goofy side to my personality. Like I like to make fun of myself quite a bit. It doesn't all, you know, like, because that's real life. Real life is about this intersection between friendship and politics and all the other things that affect our real lives. So that's what I do is I I educate adults about things related to government, history, et cetera. Um, you know, people call me America's government teacher, if that if that encompasses anything for you. But <laughs> that's sort of, you know, just what I what I'm doing in a nutshell. And it's been very fascinating to see where that's taken me. You know, you you do engender this sensibility of we are all swimming in the same basic sea, even though particularly in the United States, you know, it's a big country. There are 50 states. Last I checked, there's a lot of people of multiple views, multiple ethnicities, lots of different sensibilities coming into it. And yet there is some sort of desire for a common ground that seems increasingly absent, right? And I think you give voice to what would that common ground actually look like. And I think some of the pushback, at least what I've gleaned as being pushback is okay, great, you've, you've assembled people in a collective sensibility of let's just look at things that, that are common challenges, whether it's abortion or politics or climate change, but then you don't take a stance on it. And okay, so then what? That I think has been some of the, 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 the pushback on that. And it's been some of the pushback about what we're doing at the Progress Network too, which is great. Thank you so much for your more even-keeled, kind sensibility, but what now? Mm. The foundation for any society's progress has always been education. I I would argue that education uh, is progress, right? If you think about things like um, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, what is it that people were asking for? Of course, they wanted equality. They wanted to be treated fairly. Part of that included the right to an education because literacy, and by literacy, I don't just mean being able to read a book. I mean, uh, being able to that find, digest, and understand information that's important to you. Literacy is absolutely essential for any amount of change to occur. Uh, without literacy, without that education piece, what we have are puppets, right? We have puppets that can be easily controlled by someone else. And I would argue that's far more dangerous than an educated populace that is able to make their own choices about things. Now, there are certain things that I'm more than happy to take a position on, right? Like, we're not going to be over here pretending that racism is sometimes great, You know what I mean? Like, there's no, like, sometimes anti-Semitism is a good idea. You know, like, there there are some things that, in my opinion, are moral absolutes that we're not going to pretend that there are uh, multiple sides of. But if you want to talk about the best way to fund roads and bridges, if you want to talk about what uh, independent state legislature theory uh, is and the impact that it could have on the United States, there is more than one position to be taken. And the idea that one individual has all of the answers, that person is called a dictator. In every point in history, an individual with all the answers uh, has aspired to greater and greater amounts of power. So I'm not arrogant enough to think that I have all the good ideas. Uh, And anybody that is has generally been a menace. (laughs) So I really believe that education is, is the beginning of change. We should say, too, that there is research out there that links, you know, countries' news literacy and the population with people's susceptibility to conspiracy theories. For instance, where news literacy is low, the potential that people are going to fall prey to conspiracy theories is higher. And we certainly have, all, I, I want to say a lot of that in the United States, but enough of it to be talked about conspiracy theories these days. So I imagine you've dealt with a fair number of them, just given the sheer numbers of people that you deal with online. Do you find that like the presenting just the facts, ma'am, is something that really works for them? Or is there something that you've found over the course of your your time online that is like, this is the way to go about this? 
you know, there is an inroad with with this kind of conspiracy theories mindset, and I think I've found it. Mm. I'm not going to hold myself up as the bastion of, you know, having unlocked how to fix this issue. But I do spend quite a bit of time dealing with it, thinking about it, answering questions about it, reading about it, reading the latest research on it. And the latest research talks uh, extensively about how believing in and becoming involved in conspiracy theory-related communities, particularly online, is very addictive. It's addictive in the same way that drugs are addictive in the brain. And so when you begin to think about this as a form of addiction, it it allows you to reframe how you approach this Mm -hmm. issue. Telling an addict the facts about addiction, it does not make them not an addict right? If I go to somebody who is addicted to heroin and say, listen, if you keep doing this, it's going to do all the following terrible things to your body and to your life and to your children, et cetera. Chances are good they already know that. Mm. Chances are good that they are, they're not making decisions based on facts. And unfortunately for me, I wish this was not true, but (laughs) most humans don't make decisions based on facts. Most humans make decisions based on emotions, Our emotions tell us uh, what we believe. They dictate what we think and feel. So from my research understanding of this issue, the manner in which you approach a topic or approach an individual in active addiction matters greatly. If you break down somebody's door and you're like, you're the scum of the earth and you're going to jail. And you're stupid. <laughs> and you're stupid and everybody else is smarter than you. Is that person going to be like, well, you know what? I've seen the light. I'm giving it up. <laughs> right? Like, no. It, the person who approaches the situation from that very aggressive, forceful manner, they become the problem. The person does not internal very often does not internalize the problem as being endemic to themselves. The other person who's approaching them is the problem. So I think it's very useful to think about what are the most effective ways of helping people who have an addiction issue. And a lot of that is addressing the emotional component of of conspiracy theory, belief and involvement. So... I've thought about this a lot in this challenge of facts in the face of feelings and the complete failure of facts in a moment of heightened feeling to do anything other than have people either reject them or in some sense, it's like fuel for more Mm -hmm. indignation. What do you do about that? Most of the research shows that the more forcefully you push back against somebody's beliefs that are rooted in emotion, the more desperately they will cling to them. Right. Which is, again, as I mentioned, infuriating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hate that about human nature. I wish humans were less driven by emotion, but you can also understand why from like an evolutionary perspective, we didn't have facts. You know, like when you're out on the plains and you see wolves in the distance, you're not like Wikipediaing the chances, statistics around wolf attack. I am now if I've got a cell phone coverage. That's <laughs> right, the first thing I'm doing. Right. If a black right. bear is in front of me, the first thing I'm doing is, you know, Google do I run it. or do I stay on Google? Yeah, yeah. Google it. <laughs> right. But I mean, like that that information was not at anybody's fingertips. And so your emotions uh, are kept you safe. So that the human brain has not evolved past that, even though we now have the ability to uh, ascertain facts more readily because we have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips literally being held in our hand. So if you're going back to this idea that these kind of beliefs are rooted in emotion, what the research says is most effective at Uh, eliminating those kinds of beliefs. Number one is maintaining a relationship with that person. Uh, If you, again, if you go on the attack, that's not going to change anything. If you want to have the hope of influencing them in the future, you have to maintain a relationship. And number two, you have to plant a seed of doubt. You don't have to change their mind. You don't have to get them to admit anything. You don't have to tell them, they don't have, they don't need to say, you know what, I've seen the light. I'm I'm wrong, you're right. In the same way that people who are facing active addiction must decide for themselves to get better, 
and then you as a person can support them in those efforts. A person who is actively believing these kinds of things has to decide for themselves to change what they believe. And facts generally don't factor into that. The feeling of a seed of doubt does, however. That seed of doubt causes them to then begin to explore ways in which that doubt might be legitimate or not. Again, this is not easy. This is not fast. This is not satisfying. This is not a surgery where afterwards you're all better. Sometimes it never happens. But that seed of doubt is is very akin to somebody making the choice to, to seek treatment for an addiction. That seed of doubt is what can slowly grow over time. And the people that I've spoken to who used to believe in, say, a, a conspiracy theory like QAnon, who used to believe that and no longer do, can almost always pinpoint a moment when a doubt crept into their mind, where there was a a moment where they're like, and then they said this, and it really, like, it really got to me. I really started thinking about, you know, is this is this right? And I started exploring that more, but it didn't come because somebody opened a water hose, you know, a fire hose of facts and blasted them in the face with it. It was it was gentle and it was relationship based and not and not fire hose facts based. That is so important what you just articulated. And it's also important for especially for people like me who I think grew up in the what now I think is a naive belief that all you had to do was kind of lay out the fact pattern and that in and of itself would be persuasive. Um and increasingly recognizing that, of course, that's just, I mean, I've experienced that. I think it's clear that that is not the effective pathway to either bridging differences or or having us all be a little more open to things that we don't know or think we know, but would, uh, don't. What's also nice about it, too, is that a small seed of doubt sounds manageable. You know, we were talking in our last episode with Jason Pfeiffer, and we were talking a little bit about agency and how to give people agency. And I think having a... a micro action, you know, that seems like something that can be accomplished. Can I plant a little seed of doubt? Can I ask a question? Yes, I can do that. It's like the opposite of a microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> a micro planting. Yeah, it does. In the same sense that you, if somebody is an alcoholic, it's not your responsibility that they're an alcoholic, even though they might be destroying people's lives around them, uh, even though they might be harming you. You can't become you can't make them become not an alcoholic anymore. And so once you realize that, that is, it's actually not your responsibility. And I'm not saying we don't have responsibilities to our friends and neighbors. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying somebody else's uh, thoughts and beliefs belong to them. And unfortunately, it would be great if there was some ultimate arbiter of, of uh, truth and rightness uh, but there isn't. <laughs> and people have to be allowed to come to their own conclusions. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. 
And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. The other interesting part of what you just said, too, was that you started that it was relationship-based. And that's another thing that I think, maybe not so much now, I don't hear a lot of talk about this anymore, but definitely around 20, well, around 2016, when Trump was elected, all of a sudden on the left, at least, it was like very, very popular to cut off your friends and family as a moral imperative, right? That you were doing something wrong if you continue to talk to your uncle who voted for Trump. And there's a, a similar thing online where as this push for us to feel like we're doing something, there's this push to always put out your political opinions online. Like, this is what I stand for. This is what I don't stand for. And I'm wondering how you see all of that. If you see yourself as a, as a pushback to that at all, and what you've seen from your your followers online about this. I think people are feeling, in some cases, they're feeling weary of the relationship dynamics that those actions have created. The relationship dynamics that tell us it's not okay to be friends with somebody who voted differently than you do. It's not okay if you invite them over to your house. It's not okay if you're, frankly, if you're related to them, deny the relationship. You know what I mean? Or openly denounce them and be like, my crazy uncle. I don't speak to him anymore. You know what I mean? This, This guilt by association. People are growing weary of it. And again, there are extreme versions of this. If you're a Nazi, yeah, you are guilty by association to Hitler, right? You know, like there are extreme versions of guilt by association. Um, But when we're talking about average familial relationships, the person you sit next to at work, somebody you're out at at, to a wedding with and they get seated at your table, this idea that somehow their beliefs taint you is I think people are starting to feel like that is, this is not working. What we're doing right now is not working. The data is not getting better in terms of polarization. So this idea that we must cut off anyone who believes slightly differently than us is not serving to bridge that gap. Again, because people don't make decisions based on most decisions based on facts. Right. But you do have the same challenge, which we're now seeing in our contemporary world, which is when people were fighting hundreds of years of creedal wars, right? Uh, Protestants and Catholics in the 17th century, uh, Muslims and Christians, those things were not susceptible to, hey, let's take a step back and where really listen meaningfully to the other side and mm-hmm. try to respect their perspective and views. You know, there was a kind of essentialized, if you believe X and X being antithetical to my Y, there is no common ground here. There is either you remove said person from your life, and, it, and if you can, in those earlier times, you remove them from life. And that's a real challenge now, because I think there is a degree to which, you know, you just made the totally legit analogy of, look, there's a big difference between someone having a radically different political view from you within the spectrum of American politics right now and they're Heinrich Himmler or something. But uh, increasingly, I don't think people actually feel that. I think they feel like mm. they're that is as antithetical as yes. you believe in a different God and and the only damnation follows from that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you're totally right. This our, our new form of tribalism is political beliefs. Right? We live in a very pluralistic society, the likes of which humanity has never seen before. So if you are looking back on history and you're like Protestants and Catholics, guess what? They self-segregated by geography. 
Like, y'all can live over there. We'll live over here. Y'all Catholics go live on the island, a different (laughs) island than the rest of us. And then we'll carve out like a little chunk of that island that can be with the Protestants over here. We self-segregated by by tribe, by geography, by a variety of different, you know, by country, variety of different modes. We now live in a highly, highly pluralistic society. Again, there's no other country in the world like it. And so it creates a new level of challenges for the human brain, which is capable of overriding its emotion circuit to say, actually, the people who dress differently than me are not dangerous to me. You know what I mean? Like that that immediate belief, that snap judgment of like, oh, that person is wearing something that is scary. Um, we're capable of overriding that. But political beliefs are a new form of tribalism. They're a new easy way for what sociologists refer to as in-group, out-group identification. It's easy for us to determine who belongs here and who doesn't. And the sooner we admit that to ourselves, the sooner that we can admit that in-group, out-group selection is in some ways, very, very similar to judging people based on appearance, the sooner we can start to make progress. And I love what you're doing using history around that, right? Because at some point, and it's not clear what the what the cutoff line is, people are much more willing to look at differences and look at challenges when they're in the past, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't oh, touch totally. those buttons to the same degree. Totally. And, and it's a way of kind of bringing people into the habit of, oh, right. And we've had these massive conflicts before. Somehow we were able to find, if not full common ground, at least areas where we could meet common challenges with commonality, while simultaneously also really disagreeing. I mean, this is true during the New Deal with segregationists, right? A lot of the Democrats who supported many of the social programs of the New Deal were racists and segregationists, and yet they supported the creation of Social Security and the creation of the SEC. I mean, all these things, right? So people work together on X area, even though they were radically divided. And I think, you know, what you're doing, uh, some of what you're doing is is sort of high school part two, right? It's bringing people as adults, the knowledge that they may have glossed over when they were in high school, but now they're actually very interested in, which is also great, by the way. And uh, I'm, I'm very... I'm very pleased that not just that you're doing that, but it's having such resonance that you're doing that. Mm, thank you. For some of us, it's it's not even high school part two because our high school education was so badly done that it's really just high school the first time around. <laughs> <laughs> In a lot of places, government is a one-semester class. In a lot of places, it is. It is in my city. It's a one-semester class. In some places, it's a year long. But the idea that you could learn everything you needed to learn at age 16 to be to understand the totality of the world's complications that's a lot to put on a one semester class <laughs> when you're a teenager that you probably didn't really want to take they were probably very focused on teaching you you know the three branches of government and checks and balances and the Pledge of Allegiance and things along those lines. But there's there's so much that we've discovered now would be very useful for people living in a highly pluralistic society, living in closer proximity to people who are different than we are more than ever before. Certainly not as integrated as it probably should be, but especially in America's cities, much more integrated than it ever has been. That opens up a lot of challenges for that emotional human brain. But again, we can make the choice to override it if we have some education on why it should be overridden. Sharon, I was going to ask you, which we haven't, we've touched on sort of this literacy of of education in terms of knowing your history, knowing how the government functions. We haven't talked much about news literacy. Do you get into that bit at all? There's something that you said, I saw it on the Trevor Noah show. The average American today my experience has been that they have a very difficult time distinguishing between a lie and bias. They believe that those two things are the same. That just totally hit it on the nail for me. So yeah, any thoughts you have around also teaching people how to read the news, which is something that we try to do here as well? Yet increasingly, Americans are distrustful. 
of news outlets, increasingly, especially legacy news media. They're increasingly distrustful. This is one of the the lowest points uh, of trustworthiness that uh, Americans have had with the media. And one thing to keep in mind is that partisan media has existed since before the United States was born. Partisan media was the norm in the colonies. You subscribed to a newspaper based on your political beliefs. You'd buy a newspaper based on your political beliefs. I like Benjamin Franklin. I'm going to get his newspaper. I hate Thomas Jefferson. I'm not buying that one. So this is embedded into the fabric of American society. Now, for a period of time, when during the rise of television, we had mitigating efforts to combat some of that polarization in the media, uh, and those those went away in the 1980s. Uh, it was called the Fairness Doctrine. But one of the reasons there is such an increasing amount of distrust, in my opinion, uh, is related to exactly what we were talking about before this this new this new era of tribalism this in group out group identification either you identify as a watcher of Fox News in which case you are in or you watch CNN and you're out or vice versa right MSNBC you are out um, Newsmax you're in again or vice versa uh, it's an easy way for us to identify who's in and who's out. But one of the things that many people, in my experience, uh, fail to differentiate between is that there is a, a big difference between reliability in reporting and slant or bias. The reliability is the, you know, like the who, what, where, when, why. Like, are we getting the facts of this story right? Um, did, how many people died in the fire? Who put it out? Where was it? You know, those are the facts of the story. Uh, but how that story is characterized varies widely between various news outlets. So people often will say something along the lines of, I don't believe anything fill-in-the-blank news source has to say. They're all a bunch of liars. And two things could be at work. One, they don't understand the difference between bias and lie. And I, I continually say bias is not a synonym for lie. They're not the same thing. Or number two, they have difficulty with the this idea of the way the news is delivered to them. And they bristle at the sort of, it seems hyper-partisan. It seems like it's designed to make you angry all the time. And so they feel like they have to disengage from it which is understandable. There is a lot of research that shows that watching a lot of news it takes a toll on your mental health. And so they are left unable to distinguish between fact-based reporting and commentary. If it's on a news channel, it means that it's they believe it's being presented as fact. Um, and so when they discover something that is opinion, they immediately become distrustful of that news source because they think everything on this channel should be news and when it slips into commentary or opinion or analysis, everything you say is a lie. Everything is suspect then, because we have not developed that news literacy to determine what is commentary and what is fact reporting. So as we wrap up, you have this very large following now. Where do you go from here with that? Is this Do you just want to continue building out educational modules or what do you want to do with this? I know this is all new, so I'm sure you're making this up as you go along. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit like building the plane while flying it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never approached this with a master plan. Um, <laughs> by October of 2022, I will have 1 million Instagram followers. You know, like that is not how this ever came to be. It's very organic. I do have a book that will be coming out in probably in spring of 24. So that will be part of it. I will have, I'm going to take some of the things that I talk about and translate that into a more written form. We're going to continue to grow our documentary series in our podcast. Uh, here's where it gets interesting. And we'll see where it goes from there. I want to continue that sor sort of um, organic growth because this is has always been based on what other people need and want, uh, not based on uh, my own master plan. So what what America needs and wants may look very different in two years than it does today. Well, 
Thank you so much for being a part of the Progress Network. Clearly, these are aligned sensibilities, and we keep finding more and more people that are aligned with this sensibility of, you know, start from a place of commonality, don't start from a place of outrage and fear. The kind of conspiratorial hot emotions or just those intense feelings of tribalism are totally a part of human nature, but are unlikely to lead us anywhere except into a downward vortex of despair and division. (laughs) And it's great that you're doing the work that you're doing and Mm. that it's had such resonance, especially. So congratulations. And let's see what we can do from here. Thanks, Sharon. (laughs) Thank you. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. So that was interesting to talk to someone who's very much so in the trenches, so to speak. And, you know, one thing that was coming to my mind when Sharon was talking is that, you know, I was out for dinner last week here in Greece and somebody asked me how much money I make. And I was like, well, you know, where I come from, like, we, we don't ask that, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to answer the question. And he was like, well, where I come from, that's totally fine to have that conversation. You just never ask people who they voted for. And I was like, huh, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, maybe we could bring a little bit more of that into the U.S. <laughs> that's very funny. Like, you know, it's such a culturally determined thing. And she was, I think, pointing to what is you know, perfectly acceptable amongst one tribe is completely verboten amongst another. And you, you come up against these things and you're like almost, your heart skips a beat, right? Because you, <laughs> you don't know how to process that. And I think some of what Sharon's speaking to and trying to do is how do we help all of us not give in to those reactions, right? To take that moment and to think. She talked about the seed of the seed of doubt that becomes a constructive seed, a sapling that, that that breaks up the otherwise hard and rigid wall of prejudice. And there is this whole trend, which I also find fascinating, and you've seen it in self-publishing with people like Colleen Hoover, where whatever is the establishment and mainstream, the mainstream media or, or the mainstream publishing world, is not as immediately receptive to needs that are immediately palpable. And I think one mm. of the reasons that that she's done so incredibly well, or Heather Cox Richardson, or, or a whole number of people who essentially have developed these massive followings very quickly, but not through traditional channels. You know, she's not a, Sharon's not a columnist for the New York Times. She's mm. created an Instagram phenomenon that then became a Zoom and podcast phenomenon. And I do think that speaks to, there's a lot out there that is not reflected well in the channels that we're all used to. And that's really, really important to remember that the channels that we're used to have a kind of a sensibility and a focus and a and a franchise, but one that may not and absolutely is not serving where a lot of people actually are. Right. And yeah, that's what I mean by in the trenches is that like she was answering a need that she saw just as a normal person in the United States. And I have a inkling that she probably listens to her followers a lot more than a traditional, let's say, news organization or book publisher or what have you listens to what, you know, 
people are saying they would like to see more of or less of or change. Absolutely. Anyway, it's great that she's part of this. It's great that she's doing the work that she's doing. And I'm interested to see what book form that takes in uh, next year. So as we are now doing, let's move from our stimulating conversation with Sharon to looking at some of the stories and news that has gone on over the past week that many people probably haven't been paying as much attention to because it's been buried in the usual sea of doom scrolling. Yeah. So speaking of doom scrolling, our first topic is a really cheerful one. It's about suicide. Oh, that's but that good really news about suicide. Good I news mean, about suicide. Yeah. Tell me. The news just came out that U.S. military suicides have dropped. In an encouraging sign, a new VA report shows veteran suicides dropping to the lowest number since 2006. It's showing that suicide is preventable. VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes says in 2020, there were 343 fewer instances of suicide than the previous year. They are not 100% sure if this is related to like pandemic era shutdowns. The numbers are different across different branches of the military, but there has been a steady increase in suicides in recent years. And then now there's a decline, which is you know, remarkable, especially because they're trying to change the culture around mental health in the military. So, you know, they are trying to basically destigmatize getting help. They're pushing mental health services. They're providing firearms locks for service members. And if I were a betting man, I would say that I think that those things are probably helping and that, you know, we can take a look at the numbers down the road. But it seems it seems heartening. Right. I mean, that the military, which is a, you know, fast in the United States, 2 million people institution, and is often an incubator for other solutions that get disseminated throughout society. Taking mental health more seriously, obviously there has been a real change over the past 10 to 15 years of taking PTSD more seriously as a thing that is tangible and real and not just to be swept under the proverbial rug. So... It's less good news about suicide, the oxymoron in that fully understood, than it is good news about a large institution that we don't typically associate with attending to the softer aspects of human nature, doing so in a way that is tangibly helping servicemen and women who are equally, if not more, susceptible to the the stresses and pains of their job and their lives and deserve every bit of compassion and help that can possibly be brought to bear. For sure. And I think it's also for us, since since we like to, to point out what's going right, an interesting opportunity to talk about suicide rates in the U.S. generally and also the world, because this is, as per the conversation we just had about facts versus feelings. So here we are presenting a fact. But, you know, maybe there are some uh, people out there listening that are have minds that are changed by facts. But I think the common assumption about the suicide rate is that it is up, 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 when globally it is down, 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 something like 40% since 1990. In the U.S., it's a little bit more wavy. It goes has floated up and down since 1990, but currently it is down from where it was in 1990. So it's definitely not a situation where it's just dramatically increasing. Right. It's not bad and getting worse. Exactly. Which is a little bit... It's interesting considering all the numbers that you see about how much depression rates are and anxiety and mental health and teenagers and all of that. So what else should we look at? So midterm fever is beginning. Georgia started their early election period last week. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Georgia for breaking records in terms of the number of people that casted ballots last week. 131,000 people. And that's compared, I think, to 71,000 in 2018. So people that are fired up to vote, that's cool. And that is, and I'll try to be nonpartisan about this, there was a lot of concern about laws being passed in the wake of 2020 that were widely classified, particularly on the left, as voter suppression. And, you know, perhaps there was uh, attempts to create restrictions on voting, but clearly those have not worked in the least. So what you have is massive amounts of voting, even if there have been laws that have been passed in multiple states that were designed to make voting a little more frictionful and a little more difficult. Yeah, and people also might not know that 
when those various laws around the country were passed to restrict voting, and again, this is not to dismiss that as a concern. Obviously, in any situation, we want to be increasing people's capacity to vote. But at the same time, I think it was over 20 states passed laws that expanded the ability to vote because of the pandemic, all of the you know mail-in voting, but also changing the early election period, changing the times that the polls are open for the better. And a lot of that got totally ignored, which is kind of a bummer. Right. And you're now seeing the effects of it, particularly, as you just said, in Georgia, but you're going to see it in, in many other states as well. Just this several weeks of voting, which will probably lead to a midterm election with more individuals voting, just like we saw more individuals voting in 2020 than had been the pattern for the prior 50, 60 years. Right, exactly. And we should say too, so the numbers for the the millions of active voters on state rolls in Georgia is 7 million. So of course, there's still like the percentage of people in Georgia voting could be improved. But I think it's really exciting that for the first time in a long time, like you just said, a lot of people are turning up and turning out. And that is good for democracy, right? That Yeah, absolutely. It may not lead to the results everybody wants, but it is part of the point of a democracy is that people right. are engaged and participating. Right, right. And the other thing around the midterms that I wanted to bring up, and we don't often talk about particular articles on the podcast. We talk about the news more generally, but there was a particular article in the New York Times by Nate Kahn that was examining gerrymandering. And this is another thing where a lot of people have a concept that the country is very unevenly gerrymandered. And Nate looked at the data. He, you know, looked at the maps and he came out with the conclusion that we have the fairest map for the House of Representatives in the last 40 years. There's a slight Republican tilting edge, but it's much smaller than it has been in the past. Some of it is because Democrats have also aggressively gerrymandered in certain states. So it's not like we all got to a nice conclusion because everybody stopped gerrymandering. (laughs) But there has been some of that redrawing of of maps that turned out to be more fair on both sides. And it's hard to argue at the end of the day that you don't want a fair map. So at least we're like playing on a fairly even ball field. Yeah. I mean, that is an important caveat, which is some of the conclusions that Nate talks about are a result of if uh, California aggressively gerrymanders in a Democrat direction and North Carolina or Texas aggressively gerrymanders in a Republican, that will at a national level somewhat offset and create what looks like a representational map. And I do think it's important as a, a reminder that there's a lot of sense of what's going on in the United States today that is often predicated on a belief that it was better then and it's worse now. Mm. And these kinds of studies factually do at least remind us that whatever the challenges of the present are, many of them are not so much better in the past. And I I think that one of the things that precludes meaningful addressing of our contemporary problems is often a false sense of what was then— And in many ways, like, you know, liberals idealized the New Deal and the 1970s, not as an economic time, but as a time of, like, social change or the 60s and and, uh, as as social change, Medicare was passed and expansion of Social Security and the Great Society. And conservatives, small c, often idealized the 1950s as a time when the nuclear family was the, the unit that everybody loved and supported. And a lot of those lenses are just myths. Mm. Yes, those things happen, and there was truth to those myths, but it is very helpful to remind ourselves that much of what we now find unacceptable has often been unacceptable in the past. It may have reached a tipping point where it's a lot less acceptable to us, but to believe somehow that it's all a story of decline, I think, can be its own form of sort of outrage and despair. Like, oh, look how, look how far we have fallen. And it's helpful to say, maybe we never did this very well, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do it better, but maybe Mm. we've always done it badly. And now we've finally gotten to the point where it's not acceptable. Yeah. And to tie that back around to what we talked about with Sharon really quickly before we end, you know, she mentioned something that we've been speaking about in the newsletter as well. And other Progress Network members discuss that America is such an experiment in pluralism It's the first time we've had people from all kinds of different backgrounds coming together. 
And I will say that there does seem to be a sort of distinct American viewpoint that Americans are particularly intolerant, which is like very quickly destroyed. If you go almost anywhere outside the United States, you realize like, actually, uh, ooh, it's kind of rough out here when it comes to, uh, you know, people's views on immigrants, people's views on people of different races and ethnicities. So I think we should just give ourselves Yes, no, we're not we're not perfect, but maybe you could give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back about that. There is something to be said for knowing that you can express your views, be intensely opposed to other sides, and yet the daily warp and woof of society is fairly orderly and stable in a way that allows us to mouth off online and not worry palpably about whether or not this is going to become a threat to your your life, your family, your standing, your ability to work, earn a living, you name it. And I think we forget the degree to which in in vast parts of the world, including in the United States, it was often a much more destabilizing, physically, daily destabilizing, to be so at odds, whereas now it's kind of like online destabilizing. So this is a really good reminder. For instance, if you look at something like the news that's coming out about Iran around the rock climber El-Naz Rakabi. An Iranian rock climber is back at home and speaking out this morning after her actions at an international competition sparked concerns for her safety. The woman says she climbed without her nation's mandatory hijab because she was called to climb the wall unexpectedly. And in a rush, she unintentionally left her head covering off. It's not clear if she will face any repercussions. The controversy comes amid nationwide protests in Iran after a young woman died in police custody. She was arrested for allegedly wearing her headscarf too loosely. So it, yeah, it's just it's just a reminder of exactly what you're saying that the United States has has come away with this, and um, there are many other countries that are in a much more of that daily destabilizing daily. You can't exactly say what you want to say or do what you want to do or make the choices that you want to make. And that, for me, at least for now, has been, you know, when I get asked the question, okay, what would what would make me uh, palpably, if not outraged, much more uh, concerned about the state of American society and democracy. And I think for the mm. moment, the sheer noise and the ability to express and say and debate what one wants to without fear of any of these consequences is a massive bulwark against most of what people fear in the United States. And is a stark contrast to what you just said about Iran. It's a stark contrast to China. Uh, that doesn't mean I think the United States should, should be spending a huge amount of time trying to change the world. I think mm. we should try to change ourselves first, and then mm -hmm. we'll see what example that sets for the world. But it is a reminder of that is in and of itself uh, a real bulwark of whatever freedoms we hold dear. And thank God for that. Yep. The mess isn't always a mess. Sometimes it's lots of messy, seeming freedom of speech at play. <laughs> I like that. The mess is not always the mess. So we can end with that. Uh, yeah, well, as, as we end, enter a very messy two weeks of uh, mm -hmm. political extremism in the United States, just remember that a mess is not always a mess. And we'll see what the future holds. Thanks again for the conversation, Emma. Thank you all for listening to What Could Go Right and hopefully reading the What Could Go Right newsletter and helping us spread the sensibility of the Progress Network of people like Sharon and everybody else. So. Until next week. Thank you. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven. Our editor is Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Puckalomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to sign up for the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org.